The reading today is Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that is so easily trips us up, and let us run with the endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon knowing that it's not on our shoulders to perfect our faith. But as we just read, Lord, um, we look to you to perfect our faith. God, our hope is solely in you. We just pray tonight or this afternoon, God, um, that you would speak to us. We trust that you've given Evan a word that we each need to hear, God. Um, we just thank you for each person here this afternoon. God, give us ears that can hear you, hearts that are malleable and willing to change, Lord. We thank you that you bring true change God, um, in the midst of one another as we're gathered together, Lord. So we confess individually and also communally, Lord, our need for you um, and for your power in our lives, Lord. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Sounding good, huh? Jamie, do I need to move? All right, perfect. Wow, this is not light. How's everybody doing? Still, still, uh, keep going this way. All right, keep going this way. I don't see where the tape is, but I will see it now. All right, this is a fun exercise, guys. Awesome. All right, all right. Still having a hard time, huh? Keep going. Is that better? Do y'all like the uh, feedback? Was that a was that a helpful uh, a helpful way to start? Move this way. Okay. This has been... Let's try this way. Is that better? All right. Guys, I appreciate the affirmation. Um, Grace Hill, it's good to see you this afternoon. Thank you for bearing with even the microphone issue right now, but we are going to trust that the Lord is going to speak to us this afternoon. I'm thankful to be able to be here. Alan is getting a much needed break. He took off, well, he didn't really take the week off, but he had an opportunity. Um, would you like me to change to the handheld mic? Would that be helpful? Okay. Um, he got a chance to take the week and just pray and think and get away. And so he is not here with us today. He is enjoying time with his family. So um, guys, we're just really thankful for his leadership and just the, the chance that he gets to move away just for a little bit of time is just great for he and his family. And uh, so we're just thankful that he has that time. What I want to do is I want to jump in today and I want us to consider what we've already been talking about for the past several weeks. And it started at Palm Sunday. And so if you remember, we started a series called If Jesus is Real, dot, dot, dot. If Jesus is real, the first week we looked at, if Jesus is real, then he cancels our sin and our debt. That is the good news of the gospel, right? That is what G the, the fact that Jesus 
rose from the dead is the reality that you and I can now stand here today or sit here today, sing songs of praise as God's people and be reminded that our sins are forgiven. That is really good news. We also looked at the fact that if Jesus is real, then the church, the place that we are today, that you and me together, this place is a place where accusations come to what? To die. If Jesus is real, then really what accusation can stand against you and me in light of what Jesus has done for us, if Jesus is real? And even last week, Alan shared with us from the word of God that if Jesus is real, then you and me together have the incredible privilege and opportunity to be able to love each other sacrificially. Now, if is a really big word. And so we're not spending time trying to explain the historical reality of Jesus's resurrection, but the fact is that the the tomb is empty. And so the reality is that everything hinges on this resurrection. And so what I get the chance to do today for you and for me, as we open up the word of God, is to consider this statement as well. If Jesus is real, can transformation really happen amongst us as the church? Can we really change? I want us to consider that today. I want us to look at the word of God. And I want to just confess to you guys, Grace Hill, as one of your pastors, I'm, I'm still new, so I'm still getting a chance to meet with you. So some of you don't know me, but some of you do. But I just want to be honest at the get-go of this as I'm sitting under the word of God this week and studying this and, and excited to share this because I think there is good news for you and me today. Not just to hear or to know, but actually to then live out from. I, I genuinely believe it. I've given my life to this. And I'm thankful as I've spent this time that God has helped me see things. But in light of that, what I've had to do is do some confession. And so some confession is just having to go, sometimes I don't really understand how's the resurrection of Jesus, his, the real reality that Jesus is real, affect me now. Now, I don't know if some of you are like me, but here, here, here's the deal for me. I can know in my head that Jesus died, he lived, a, he lived a perfect life, he died and then he rose again. I, I, I can know that and I can know that my sins have been forgiven and I'm so grateful for that. And maybe you're like, yeah, I get that. I know that. But, but then I also know that, well, the resurrection is great news for you and me today because guess what? We have a hope that in the future, we will be raised from our dead physical bodies and to be with God forever. That is really good news too, isn't it? But here's where my confession to you lies. I struggle after following God now for almost 36 years of my life to sometimes recognize, so, but what about now? And if you're not a Christian, if you're with us today, if you're online watching us and you're listening, there's this part in the Bible, it's called the New Testament. And it's just some books of the Bible that were written after Jesus had Uh, once Jesus had lived and these guys are writing, they use language for Christians like new creation. So you and I would be considered if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that we're new creations, but I'll be honest, there's plenty of times I don't feel that new. Now I said feel. 
Does anybody else resonate with that at times? Do you, do you feel today as you sing songs like, I am a new creation, I can sing, that Jesus is the king of my heart and, and, and my, my heart soars? Or are there plenty of us today who come in and going, man, life's been really heavy this week. To be honest, coming here was not really something I was eager to do. I know what tomorrow holds for my job or my family or wherever I'm at. So how does the resurrection of Jesus, should it have an impact for me now? Or should, should we just celebrate it once a year, the 364 days after we just kind of like go, well, we'll just celebrate it again one more time. Or do we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every day? And I want to just say, I think there's something for you and me today that is hopeful that's not just to save us and to resurrect us when we're dead, but that today that we can find hope in the power of Jesus' resurrection. Now, I've wanted to see change in my life. I was already sh sharing that. So some of you maybe grew up in the church. I certainly did. And so what I knew change was supposed to mean was that here was the list of things that I needed to do. I needed to know the Bible. That's really, really good and really, really important. I needed to memorize scripture. Really, really good. Really, really important. And then I also knew that I needed to seek to demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit. Some weird language if you're not familiar with Christianity, of fruits of the Spirit. But it's like gentleness and kindness. So I would try really hard to be those things. Self-controlled, ask my wife, that can be hard for me. I'm like a child sometimes. And 41 years old, I am still wrestling with that. I don't know if anyone else feels the same way. You're, you're still wrestling through life and the realities of what you used to be like. So I'm not downplaying one bit the fact of knowing things about God being any less important, but is there something that we are supposed to experience and live? Being a Christian means that we follow Jesus. There's something different about us. So here's the question again. If Jesus is real, can our transformation happen or do we just grin and bear until the resurrection of our full bodies come? Is there transformation available for you and me today? Are you angry? Are you still stuck in a sin? Are you indifferent to God right now? What does the church even matter? So I think some of us would say, yes, Evan, the opportunity for transformation in Grace Hill, yes, it exists. But I wanna be careful that we don't quickly answer yes without considering a couple things. I wanna be clear in what I mean by the word transformation today. Here's what I mean by transformation. And I think we'll see this in light of what the gospel is. What I mean by transformation is that the very worst of Evan Snyder, the very worst about me, the things that I think, the things that I've done or do, the things that I feel, the good things and the really bad things that I feel, that they can be known and cared for by God in relationship with you. Who feels uncomfortable right now? See, here's the thing. I I've been pastoring now for almost a decade and there are many people who I've met with in the church and outside of the church who have found this kind of transformation where the worst about you 
can be known and shared and wrestled with and engaged with at the deepest, darkest levels of our souls and our being. But they have found that at many times outside of the church. I have so many conversations with people in my office in previous different places where they say over and over and over again, primarily where they would find the deepest connection at times was outside of this, you and me, God's people. Different ethnic, ethnic groups, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different upbringings, many finding that they found care and help in the church to be really, really difficult to find. Now, there's a lot of reasons that people can find outside of the church, and I'm not here to say that any of those are bad. Those are really good things. I'm simply trying to set up for us that might in Grace Hill Church the church that God has called you and me today to be a part of, might there be something in the rhythms of our life together as God's people, might there be something for us to consider about what does it look like for transformation, spiritual transformation for us to occur, changes really to happen in our life. And so as we look at the question of can it happen in the church, I want us to confront just realities that we face, Grace Hill, that we face inside of our community of believers and the culture upon which we live in. A Gallup poll came out. Some of you may know it. It came out the end of March. You should check it out. It's really, really, um, it's really significant. It has a lot of things to say, but that report basically said that America has seen a massive drop in those saying that they are associated with a church, a 20% drop. Now I'm not going to go into all the details. I just want to highlight that one because that was a big one. And there's a lot of people saying a lot of things about that. So what do these statistics mean? What are the assumptions, the nuances that we need to understand that are baked in to this kind of data? The simple question I wanna ask of that is, is why is church membership and attendance dropping so rapidly? Why is that happening? I believe that's germane to what we're talking about. Can transformation really happen? But for the sake of our time today, I want us to think about this transformation and this idea of change in the context of what we need, what we need to do with one another for transformation to happen. Consider this person's story. I have given up on the church completely. What do you have to say to someone like me? All I could think to say was, I don't blame you. I get it. Because the truth is I do. At that point, I too had gotten to the end of my faith that churches could be communities where spiritual transformation takes place regularly and routinely. But even as I resonated with what she was saying, my heart broke one more time to acknowledge that the very thing that could, and this person would argue, should be central to what the church is all about, being transformed into the image of Christ together, for the sake of others in a world that needs the gospel, that that was so absolutely missing from many people's experience in the church that they no longer expect to find it there. But let's be honest. These days when authentic community and real life change is what people are looking for, they routinely turn elsewhere to a yoga class or a treat, a spirituality center, a runner's club. They even would turn into an like, informal gathering of like-minded friends who want to go deeper than what they think their church can actually offer them and who can blame them, really. To be fair, churches are good for a great many things, but the church as a place where people are experiencing routinely spiritual transformation, not so much. 
Observing this, one has to ask, does the church really have a place for transformation? Are good Christians allowed to ask that question? The truth is I've experienced some transformation in the church, but I can also say the church has contributed to the care and feeding of my false self almost as effectively as it's nurtured my true self. And as I passed through the early stages of Christian discipleship into the more challenging stages of faith, there came a point when I had to admit that even though I've been in church my whole life, in my times of greatest brokenness, some things seemed to be seriously missing. I had to look outside the church, not universal, but local, to discover next steps and growing in Christ. Not to mention the layers of Christian busyness that have at times contributed to a pace of life that is completely unmanageable. The fact alone has at times caused me to run from the church rather than to run to the church. End of quote. Now that's a lot. I wanted to set this up because this is a lot of people. This isn't an isolated scenario. And in fact, Grace Hill, there might be some of you today who feel and resonate very deeply with what this person shared. Now, this person is honest, and there's a lot to this. I really want to just set that up as a sentiment for us to look to God's word and go, wait, God, so should the church be a place where I change? Or do I just come listen to 45 minutes or less of, a, of maybe a good sermon or a good talk, some really good music, and then I just go on with my life? Is that the sum total of what church is supposed to be like? So here's my question. What is the biggest reason that transformation doesn't happen in the church? Why do folks feel the need to run away from the church, not towards the church? And what I mean is you and me. Let's not make this super general. You and me today. And I think the most basic answer to this question is resoundingly shame. Shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson says in reference to shame that we all come face to face with this shame, the virtually unspoken primal obstacle to all of our growth and flourishing, and there seems to be no way of getting around shame. We must do something with shame in our lives. So what is shame? How does Satan actually use this for you and me and our community together here, Grace Hill? How does he use it so well to derail the very thing that God wants us to be? Image bearers of him conform more and more to his image together. How does he do that? He uses shame in our inner thoughts like this. I'm not enough. Really, when it comes down to it, I might not say that out loud, but this is what I think. I, I am not, I'm not enough. Something, something's really wrong with me that is very different from other people. I am, I am bad. And I don't mean a theological, oh, I'm a sinner. I just mean, no, as a Christian, go, no, I, I'm still, I, I'm bad. I'm just bad. You don't know what I think. Or how about this? I don't matter. And when will I be found out? <laughs> just hoping that never happens. And see, here's the kicker for you and me, Grace Hill. We take the shame of what we've done, what we've thought, what we've said, 
And this is just natural to all of us. And what do we do with that? It leads us into this path where we start going, we are either judging other people or we're really, really harshly judging ourselves. And that leads us to hiding and a type of isolation. And so then once this cycle takes hold in us, the very last place we look to resolve our struggles with shame, the last place we want to look is with other people. These are some of the indicators that shame is at work in us and Satan's only real effective tool against us. And the Bible is clear about this, that, that is, is shame and accusation. And Alan preached on that, that this is the place where accusations come to die. So the problem that shame creates is accusations and doubt. And so then it creates communities of individuals you and me potentially become individuals. And then we seek just to hide or gloss over really deep things. And sometimes we try to just play, hide in plain sight. How does it go? How are you doing? I'm fine. And I don't mean just the Northern Virginia, hey, how you doing? Fine, good, because I'm really busy, I gotta go. It's when we really go, how you doing? I'm doing good. I love what one therapist said. He goes, anytime I hear fine, so this is, I guess, good news for you, or this could be helpful for you. If, you. if you go to a therapist of any sort, they hear the word fine, get ready for a full court press. Because they have learned over time with many, many people like me and you that we're not always fine. See, I don't know if you would agree with this, but sometimes when I'm like, hey, how are you doing? And I'm like, I'm good. Man, I'm, I'm straining really hard at times because there's some really hideous monsters underneath the surface that I am trying to keep at bay and make sure they don't get out. And certainly that you don't see because my goodness, what would you think about me? And transformation, real transformation, the freedom that God gives us to be more conformed to his image is stunted, isn't it? We're scared of being hurt and abandoned. So I don't want to share any of that stuff with you. And, and likewise, you don't want to share that stuff with me, right? At the end of Genesis chapter two, check this out. Where do you think I'm getting some of this from? We find God and humanity in community with one another. And at the end of Genesis chapter two, you don't need to go there. But the end of Genesis chapter two, as God and, and Adam and Eve are in communion with one another, look at some point what the last line of chapter two says. I'll read it to you. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why did he use not ashamed there? Isn't the concept of nakedness the opposite of being ashamed? If there is nakedness, then there is vulnerability. And vulnerability by its very nature is the ability to be hurt. And ashamed. And so in the garden, Adam and Eve were naked with no fear, no concerns, no shame before God. And it was perfect. And this is what's so significant about what sets up to happen in the very next chapter. In the very next chapter, sin is going to enter into humanity through Adam and Eve because they are tempted and begin to doubt God's goodness. Now listen to this. Aren't they tempted by Satan to believe that something is missing in their relationship with God? What a tactic. What a tactic to sow seeds of doubt. Genesis uses language for the serpent Satan as crafty. Satan knows at the moment she, Eve, but by extension, you and me, 
The moment he could get you or me or Eve to start to doubt, to tempt her with that, that very moment is when we are vulnerable to put trust into something or someone else. That's the very moment. And so sin and shame now have its hooks in us. We are ensnared. Sin is in our nature. And in hiding we go. And so sin and shame do not merely cause us to do, quote, wrong things. They certainly do. Disobedience to God is wrong and bad at every level, but it creates chasms within our relationships with one another. It's the first thing that happened to Adam and Eve when their eyes were opened. They realized they were naked and they were what? All of a sudden they were vulnerable. So they immediately did what? They moved to hide themselves. They looked at each other. They covered themselves. And guess what else they do? They sought to hid from their relationship from God. And so Grace Hill, that is exactly what you and I do too. We should read our storyline in the very beginning of Genesis as well. We hide from our shame. So if shame's the main reason transformation doesn't happen in the church, how do we confront this problem? It's gonna be the very thing that you and I will least want to do initially. How's this for a great sermon? <laughs> I'm gonna to to tell you guys some really good news. You're not gonna to wanna to do it. But here's the truth. I don't wanna do this either. But God loves us and his word is so helpful for us. The good news of the gospel is that God doesn't leave you or me alone in our shame. He doesn't leave us in it. He doesn't just leave us, he comes towards us and he gives you and me help. He has patience. Paul writes that he has perfect patience. The scriptures say that Jesus bore our sin and our shame. What an unbelievable reality that we will spend eternity processing and praising God for. God knew we were hopeless and dead in our sin and with no ability to have a relationship with him. Our sin meant we were dead. And yet God then in that said, I will come to you and give you a way. I will give you my beloved son. And in doing so, Grace Hill, Jesus has given you and me the model for what church rhythms of life and change are supposed to look like. The model to fight for transformation is one another, you and me together, here and now. Peter and Melody read from Hebrews chapter 12. And so I just want to read it again. I love the translation. I asked them specifically to use that. I'm going to read it in a different translation. Hebrews 12 verses one and two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Grace Hill, in order for transformation to happen within our community, four things we should see from this text. Four things. 
The first is this. Here's the model. Here's how we do it. The first thing it is we focus our attention on, guess what? Guess who? It's Jesus. Now, is that just a happy Sunday school answer? Jesus, that's what we do. Great. How does that help in the middle of my sin struggle with pornography or the affair that I find myself caught in? What do I do here? No, the very first thing we need to do when we say focus our attention and focus on Jesus is we follow his example. It's not merely passive, it's active. What the author of Hebrews is telling you and me today for us is that we are to have a vision. We need to see something before we can go somewhere. We have to know where we're going, right? And that's what the author of Hebrews, we must be able to visualize and then go after. So Jesus, his real life, we are supposed to follow his model. And we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, it says. This is specifically talking in chapter 11 about a whole bunch of heroes from the faith. But this also refers to you and me. Are we not witnesses of each other? Are we not together? Yes, yes. The answer is yes. We have each other. So we help one another to look at Jesus together. We want to see what he does We want to see how Jesus thinks. We want to know how he feels and what he does with those things as he submits them all to God the Father in perfect obedience and love. So we help one another model the reality of Trinitarian love. And that is love and commitment between God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father loves Jesus and Jesus looks at him and submits to him knowing that God says of Jesus, I'm well pleased with you, my son. Who here needs to hear and be reminded that God's view of you is of one of which he is well pleased of too. Is it hard for you to imagine Jesus looking at you and literally saying, I I love you? No, really, I want us to just stop there because what was true when that question was asked of me was, I immediately ran to all the things I needed to know about God. Was yeah, I think I, I know. I think I think I know. I think I. Know. And you know what I found out? I was really uncomfortable with the fact that no, Jesus, Jesus, you love me. So we help each other, remind each other, not of something that seems so elementary, but of something that is so foundational that God loves you. So we do that with each other. So one, we focus on Jesus. The second thing is we go after each other and we let others in. Focusing our attention away from shame and on Jesus, as I said earlier, is not passive, it's active. There is no neutral ground in the battle against shame. Shame will never stop its assault on our minds and our hearts. It will never, ever stop. Its primary weapon for distracting us to look away from Jesus isn't just an individual thing either. It's comprised of our community, Grace Hill. Who do you really know? Who do you really know? And when I say really, who do you, who do you know the, the bad stuff about? 
Who really knows you and your stuff? In your sphere of relationships, who, who are you regularly, intentionally sharing deep things in your heart and soul with? Who's the cloud of witnesses that you have encouraging you, encouraging you to help put sin to death? Not just to judge you and tell you how wrong that is, but to help you move forward in holiness as you wrestle with the mess. See, going after one another means a willingness to not leave people alone in their shame. It means helping one another focus on Jesus and see that there is literally no oxygen in the room for shame because the gospel being lived out will suffocate shame. Letting people in, Grace So I'm not standing here in strength in this. I'm standing here in one who is still in the process of being conformed more into the image of Christ through the very things of sharing my brokenness with people and saying, I need your help to be reminded of what I know about God to be true. So letting people in is courageous work, Grace Hill. That's why it's often so rarely done. Letting people in means that you are vulnerable. There's vulnerability now. You can know this about me and I have the ability to be, what, hurt? Vulnerability's hard. We don't like it. Americans, you name it, anywhere across the planet, no one wants to be vulnerable. Yet it's a very interesting thing that the very thing that God says about us as his image bearers and his creation is that we are utterly dependent, which means what? We are vulnerable without him by design. Yet I work so hard to say, well, no, no, I'm, I'm, I got it. It's not true. It's not true for anyone on the planet. But we know that being seen and desired is at the heart of what the gospel really is. God says, I love you and I'm coming for you. I hate sin so much. It, it's against my very character and I am coming for it. I'm going to kill it, put it to death, and I will bring you back into right relationship with me. You and me. You bear his image. I bear the image of God. That is crazy. Do we look at each other as image bearers of God? Or do we look at us as places where I can't possibly go there because what would they think? We should think you're an image bearer of God. Jesus says in John 15 that he is not ashamed to call us friends. Isn't that crazy? Going after one another and letting other people in means we gotta be curious about each other. Asking questions, helping us to find out as Hebrew notes, what are the sin and shame that cling so closely to us? What are the weights that are on each of us that are breaking our literal backs? What are they? Are we curious about that? Be curious. You'll find things out about yourself as you listen to the stories of those you are asking questions of. And this is what undergirds our entire discipleship and community process here at Grace Hill. This very philosophy to help minister the gospel of Jesus to one another by making other the content 
and the means of connecting with one another, curiosity, to get to know one each other in love and to do the very thing that God is trying to call us into is to be conformed into his image. But we must be known to do that. This process of transformation is the beginning by seeking to know one another. And here's the other thing, let others be curious of you. Sometimes it's so easy to just be the one that asks questions because guess what? No one's asking you a question. I know how that works sometimes. If I can get it there first, it's like, well, oh, sorry, looks like we don't have any time. Thanks for sharing and I got to run because what would it mean for me to have to sit and have you be curious about my life and what's going on with me and my family? Let others be curious. You'll find things out about your story as you're curious about others. See, shame is always gonna seek to speak and speak so loudly to each of us to keep us from going to these places. It's gonna keep speaking loudly. Do not be vulnerable. You don't want to be really known. It's gonna plant seeds of doubt that are gonna say, there's no chance that happens. And C.S. Lewis said it so well when it comes to this. He said, I sometimes think shame, mere awkward, senseless shame does as much towards preventing good acts and straightforward happiness as any of our vices can. Go after each other. Let each other in. The third thing is from the text is help take the garbage out. We say this to our kids every Sunday night. Time to take the garbage out. But as we fix our eyes on Jesus and go after each other in deep relationships, what we're trying to do is seeking to put to death the things that are killing us. So we need to not just acknowledge that sin and shame exist or that we carry them or that we're struggling with them. We need to get rid of it. We need to excise them from our lives as we grow in Christ, as we seek to change. And see, this is where we must be known. The process of transformation is futile on our own if we do not let people in and therefore there's gonna be no one to help us get rid of the garbage in our life the sin that so easily entangles us. We need people who, as they are looking to Jesus, help us look to Jesus and remind us that we're known and fully loved by God, who can see our struggles and our shame, but not just see them, but come after us in them. And then help us to throw the sin and the things that are holding us back in the trash. Gone. Move. Doing this kind of work with one another is gonna be a long process. This is not like a great marketing plan, is it? Hey, sign up for this and it'll take decades. I'll do it. But God knows us. This process, this sanctification process, the idea of transforming more into the image of Christ is gonna continue until Jesus comes back for us but we can see changes in how shame can no longer have to rule and dictate how we think and what we do now. It is possible for that to change. And then that again, continues to set us free to do the very work God's called us to do, which is sharing the hope that not only can you be saved from your sin, but that God is gonna change you, your heart and your affections through each other. Jesus models and invites for us to cast our cares and anxieties on him because what? He cares for you. So we too can help one another take the garbage out of our lives together. And the last thing I wanna share is this. This might feel a little weird. 
The other thing we can do to help be a transformative community of people following Jesus together is we can be big fans of each other. The goal I believe God wants in our transformation as image bearers of God is to become more like Jesus and to show praise and glory and honor to God for who he is and what he has done. And in doing so, that means that you and me who have been given gifts, yes, every one of us have been given gifts, get to steward these gifts. We all have them because we are all image bearers of our creator. And these gifts are to be used in so many vast and beautiful ways. And these gifts, though primarily intended for the good of you and me as the church body together, they're used in so many vast ways within our own families, our extended families, the work that we do, our recreation, art, politics, economics, governments, There is no end in God's design for his people as they work towards the flourishing and the desire to see the kingdom of God advance. There literally, I believe, is no end to how God could use the gifts he's given to his people when we do that together. And so what do we need? We need to be encouraged. And I don't mean fake encouragement, like, hey, great job, and it wasn't a great job. That's not what I mean. I mean, it's when we see each other and we get to know each other and we go, hey, you know what I really appreciate about you? You know what I really appreciate? And we're really specific about it. I appreciate that you always come up first and just say, how are you doing? You know what, that means a lot to me. And I just wanna thank you for that. You're an encouragement in my life. Hey, you know what I appreciate the most about you? As I see that how willing you are to serve and never ever be upfront for anything. You know what I'm appreciative of that? Someone like Peter Von Call will come and take pictures when that's what he does all week. Who wants to do that again? I really appreciate that. Or the Lean Kyles who come and set up after a long, hard work week as well. Or Lindsay, I could just look around and just go, man, when we are fans of each other and saying, I see the goodness of God in you and I wanna see that grow. We change, we flourish. With this comes many challenges and hardships. There'll be a lot of victories and failures if we take this seriously. There's gonna be a lot of messy parts of this that we're gonna go, deuces, I'm out. No, 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 no. In fact, my wife even today challenged me in something very specific in our own context. When you're about to preach on this and I've seen how you handle your grace towards this situation. And she's absolutely right. I'm frustrated and I wanna say no more. And so I'm standing here in front of you pleading with God to help this reality be one upon which I actually can change with the help of you and through this goodness and power of the Holy Spirit. That where I don't wanna forgive, God will help me to forgive and be gracious and patient and merciful and understanding and compassionate and patient. When I just wanna check out and say, I got thousands of other things I could be doing. Yet the gospel compels me and you in this moment to go, I'm not leaving, why are you? I wanna close with why I think this idea of being big fans of one another is a biblical one. 
Paul's just set up in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, all of the different gifts that the church has. And he says it in this spot where he says, there's going to be some of you who are going to go like, well, I'm not like that. And Paul immediately rebukes this line of thinking by saying, you're all part of the body together. There's no one part of the body that is any less valuable. They are all of equal value with Christ as the head. The, the body is you and me. And you know what he's saying to? You know what he's speaking to again? When we look around at our gifts and we're trying to be big fans of one another, is it can be really easy to start going, man, you're more value, your gift's better than mine. You know what that is again? Paul's going, there's shame talking again. And you know what he gets ready to set up in 1 Corinthians 13 for us in terms of trying to be big fans of one another? You know what he's saying? There's a better way. There's a more excellent way. And being big fans of one another means, guess what? We follow a path in our relationships of one another of love. And what does love do? It never gives up. It never keeps records of wrongs. It bears all. I am telling you, if you have tasted that kind of a relationship before, you know what a godsend that is in your journey. So I'm exhorting you and me today to pray and beg God to make us a people who seek the more excellent way of being able to say we can be agents of change for each other as the Holy Spirit works through us to make us more like Christ together. Transformation can happen in the church because the gospel promises that God will never leave you and me. And he promises to complete the work in you and me that he started. And we get the privilege of being able to see that in one another. That is worth giving your life for. Being a people going, I'm never leaving. That's different. I want us to practice this now. This idea of rallying around one another, encouraging one another towards the vision of the resurrected Jesus and seeing him. And one of the greatest ways that God's given us to remember and not be distracted and have our focus on him is communion. And so as the band comes up and begins to play for us, I want you and I to spend some time with the Lord. Let him minister to us now. As we remember who we are in light of what he has done for you and me. In communion, we get to remind one another as we take it that Jesus bore our sin and our shame on the cross. And he, in Hebrews, even said that he scorned the shame. He scorned it. He looked at it and he denied it in his life, death, and his resurrection. So, Grace Hill, your shame has been nailed to the cross. You and me have a living hope. I want you to reflect on this question before you take the elements today. Here's the question for you to consider as you just reflect on God's grace and kindness to you through Jesus. What image comes to mind for you? What sort of emotions do you feel when you consider that God has come to find you? that he's come to be known by us and never, ever forsake us. So when you're ready to take the elements, do so.
but reflect on that question. Mm -hmm.